The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. If any of you have been following the news over the last couple of years, you know that more and more states are legalizing marijuana, whether it's for medicinal purposes or whether it's for recreational purposes. We're starting to see more states embrace that for one reason or another, whether it's to increase the tax base or uh, whatever the reason is. And some predict that by 2018, the marijuana market is expected to top $10 billion. Now, of course, this is a show about entrepreneurs. And as with any industry, in this case, one that's becoming legalized, entrepreneurs are flocking to it. And today, one of those entrepreneurs, our guest is Julie Dooley. She is the co-founder and president of Julie's Baked Goods in Denver, Colorado. Welcome to the show today, Julie. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you started this business, uh, Cannabis-Infused Snacks. Why did you decide to get into this? Did you see an opportunity? Uh, Did you have another reason for getting into it other than it being an entrepreneurial opportunity? Actually, uh, the fact that I'm an entrepreneur was incidental. Uh, This really was, company was founded uh, uh, in 2008, essentially, and uh, long before we had the gold rush, mm-hmm. if you will, in Colorado, we had a, a medical need in a group of women that I was friends with and or working with, myself included. I have celiac disease, and back in 2008, I was still learning how to cope with that and how to, um, you know, um, medicate myself when needed, and I'm not a fan of any pharmaceuticals, personally, mm-hmm. so... I just, uh, you know, knew that that celiac, um, these are, most of my symptoms are cured by not eating certain foods. Right. However, you know, as you're healing, it takes two years for your intestines to really heal. And so during that time, cannabis was really instrumental for me in kind of um, mastering the pain, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I also had um, another dear friend of mine who was the co-creator at the time, Kate, who had a brain tumor. And luckily it was benign and they were able to remove it completely, but she was left with extensive nerve damage, and cannabis helped with that, nerve damage in her face especially. And we also worked on a little bit of topical ointment for Kate. And then I had friends that were, um, a couple of them that were addicted to Xanax, and they Mm. desperately wanted to get off of Xanax. They wanted to sleep. They were using it literally just as a sleep aid. And so we worked out an edible that made you sleepy. 
And I'm happy to say that those women no longer use Xanax. And and kind of what happened to me, once you build up this, um, you know, you get used to your pains or whatever it is, you, cannabis isn't like a medicine that you use every day. It's just uh, once in a while, you know, I, I got into gluten, for you know, for instance, and so that'll help me. It's not like a treat for the illnesses I just described. It's not a daily treatment that's really mm-hmm. necessary, but can be used that way if you decided to. Okay, so so truly the entrepreneur part of this was incidental, as you said. You saw a personal need among your friends in your own situation where this made quality of life much better. And exactly. Then, and then you figured out a way to monetize it. Exactly. Now, things fell into place for me. So I, again, I wasn't pursuing a new career at the time. I was pursuing healing, and that's really all that I was thinking about. And things just kept falling into place. And you hear that again and again with certain businesses, especially in this industry. And so what fell into place for me was a kitchen. And uh, you are required to have a commercial kitchen if you are a manufacturer like I am. And you weren't in the beginning, but um, it, as of 2011, they required the commercial kitchen. But it was kind of intuitive that you needed it. I have children at home, and at the time they were younger. They were home. I mean, now they're, you know, one's in college, they're high school kids. You know how often you see those kids. Mm-hmm. But it, so we, Kate and I both knew that we couldn't do this in our own house. And so when the kitchen kind of fell into our lap, um, a friend of ours literally had this space in his warehouse that we're still there today, and it was inexpensive. We didn't have to go through any hoops to sign off with the landlord. He actually sought us out, and and then you know we it wasn't a huge expense either. This was a friend. He wasn't trying to gouge the marijuana right. industry. He he had a, the space and he needed a you know a, a little bit of money mm-hmm. extra, and I was going to help him out. And then finally, my husband is in the commercial refrigeration industry, and he's a specialist in walk-in coolers and freezers. And so building a kitchen, once we had the space, literally, he, he did it in two days. Yeah. Uh, he, that's what he does for a living. So it was like nothing, this tiny little 800 square foot. So that fell into place. Mm-hmm. So we had the kitchen. We had the wherewithal that we knew that this was a product worth pursuing especially after we had helped ourselves so much with it, that that's when we really started to, okay, this is a business. And now that's when we started to think like entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a common story, uh, accidental (laughs) entrepreneurship, really, uh, where you see a need, you start producing or something or providing a service, and then you realize, oh, my gosh, I've got a real business on my hands. And certainly you do. You're selling um, how many units a month these days? We're up to almost 6,000 units mm-hmm. a month. Uh, we started, we sold, I think, um, the first month we sold maybe 24 units, <laughs> which we were really excited sure. about. <laughs> and uh, now we're up to about five, between five and 6,000. December certainly will be in the 6,000 range. Um, we're anticipating January to, it always kind of has a low in January. And then our kind of national holiday or new national holiday, April 20th, um, is our biggest month of the year. 
So it's a little different industry, whereas instead of December being the number one month, it's actually April for us. Interesting. All right. Now talk to us about licensing. You said that it was uh, fairly easy because of your husband's background. You had a friend who needed space. You realized right away you're going to need a commercial kitchen. So all of that part of it fell into place for you. But one of the complaints right now is that where there is an entrepreneurial opportunity and you think of the small businesses and the smaller entrepreneurs, that between the regulations and the investors with the big money, the entrepreneurs are getting squeezed out. Are you feeling that at all? Or have you found your niche there? Yes, unfortunately. Well, definitely I have my niche. I... um, but we see that every day. I, I'm part of a organization called Women Grow, and it's a really essentially networking. And women come to see me, to talk to me, among many other successful women in the industry right now. And I hear the story again and again. Well, how did you get your license so easily, Julie? How, because I can't. They're mm-hmm. not, you know, it's $12,000 now. Well, well as when I started, it was $1,200. Whoa. I mean, the barrier of uh, the barrier of entry has become uh, almost impossible without the essential capital backing, and that was the biggest difference because I didn't have to raise a half a million dollars when I started this. You know, we had to be honest; we started with less than fifty thousand dollars in our bank um, set aside for the business, and I was overwhelmed with having that much money to spend. <laughs> and so was Kate. We we just thought that's a huge amount of money. What are we going to do with it? You know, well, now well, I have 11 employees and I'm manufacturing at this level, you know exactly how yes. small $50,000 is. But back then, that was a huge amount of money and, I, and a risk, a huge risk. We hadn't had any legalization across the country yet, and let alone there was no discussion of Colorado legalizing. Sure. And now, now let's back up a minute. Where did you get the $50,000 from, from a bank? No, 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 absolutely gonna, not. Okay, this I was, was going to say, yeah. Own, <laughs> yeah. You pulled it together, I okay. Never, and that was part of it, too, is that another barrier of entry is that I was clean as a whistle, I guess, if you will. I mm-hmm. had no record. I have nothing. I've never gone to jail. I've, I had no dings at all. The worst thing I've ever done is speed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there, that can prohibit many people from entering the industry immediately. So there were a lot of people that were in the industry prior to 2010 that had federal offenses or some kind of offense that knocked them right out of the um, of the bidding. They they couldn't even receive um, their license at that point. It's a literally, it's kind of daunting because you look at the application and it's page two. If you say yes to this question, stop filling out the rest of the application. Oh, really? <laughs> Don't waste your time, huh? You're yeah, not, exactly. you're not going to talk your way out of that offense. Okay. Exactly. And so... And not to say that I'm not in favor of that because, you know, we don't want criminals in any industry, essentially. We're trying to get rid of the black market. But there's a lot of people that did time 
for a joint. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they literally put did jail time in 1975 because they were caught with a marijuana joint on them. Now, somebody like that, I don't think they should be prohibited from working in the industry. But it was across the board. If you had any kind of ding on your record, you weren't allowed in. Okay, so, so the barrier is high cost. The licensing is incredibly expensive. You have yeah. to have an impeccable uh, history in terms of, you know, your no criminal offenses or... Yeah, yeah. and IRS. You can't have okay. that stuff with the IRS either. All right, so so barriers to entry. And then let's talk about the fact that this is a state-by-state <clears throat> issue right now and that it, all of this is still illegal federally. What kind of impact is that having? So, of course, the biggest impact is banking, and that is something that you hear about every day now. Right. And, and you're literally dealing – now, I'm different because I'm a manufacturer. So people buy from me, you know, once a week, twice a week, and I do have many vendors that can pay via check. However, a dispensary can only accept cash. So they're literally – if they're a successful dispensary, dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars in any given day in cash, mm-hmm. and they have no place – put that they have to just say put it and keep it in a safe and so they have hidden locations all over the city Uh, the danger is so obvious yeah I I actually have heard that one of the fastest growing industries coming up alongside the marijuana industry is uh, private security guards exactly and they're and and thank goodness they're out there because you have okay so I'm a 46 year old woman I kind of have wherewithal, but still, anybody could pretty much overtake me if they wanted to. And believe me, they could have everything on my person, just not me. Mm. And, you know, I'm sensible enough to know that. But you have now, let's say, a 22-year-old who is uh, working as a bud tender, and she's shown a certain amount of prowess, and so the manager trusts her to carry $20,000 to go buy something in cash. This is a young person, or my couriers that deliver all of our product. These are young kids that are susceptible to crime right now because anybody who's anybody knows that they're carrying cash, and it's not a little bit. Right. The courier, for instance, um, we use this lovely group of, um, well, they're boys, in my opinion. They're, you know, 24, 25 years old, and uh, they had... um, uh, the last week they came in and paid me, and they left, and I said, well, wait a second, Eli, how much do you have on you? And he said, oh, I still have another 72000 oh That he gosh. had to go and distribute. He was walking around with $72,000 cash well, well, after um, he saw me. Well, well, after he saw you, but still, I mean, the fact that he's even talking about it says something, you know, it's like he he answered your question. If it wasn't somebody like you, he could have really set himself up to be a target as he left. Absolutely. And and he doesn't, he he answered my question because I'm I'm one of his employers and Mm -hmm. we really like him. You know, I'm a mom, so I... You know, we he you comes care in the kitchen, we feed him an egg mm-hmm. if he's hungry. <laughs> right. But it, it, that's exactly it. He's young. He's susceptible. He's trying to pay attention. They put a little safe in their car that is time, um, so you know you can't open it. Mm-hmm. But still, you know, then you're looking at somebody who maybe is going to try and commandeer the car or something. Or I, just doesn't I mean, believe that you can't open it, and so they get mad and they 
do something to you anyway. Exactly. Yeah. But this is a serious problem. The federal government is well aware of it, and that's why I support the Marijuana Policy Project in uh, New York and NCIA, the National Cannabis Industry Association, both of those organizations are working on a federal level to change this situation. And so as a responsible manufacturer, that's one thing that you have to do is support those that are working on these higher regulations and legislation. Something that I read just last night, and it wasn't even related to uh, preparing for this interview today, it was just fortuitous, and that is there's some... Uh, talk about legal uh, giving credit unions the ability to bank yeah. marijuana. Can you talk about that? I have heard that there's a credit union that's trying to open in Colorado, and uh, I'm I'm happy that you know people are trying to go around the FDIC. Uh, you know, insur- that's because that's the whole problem is that yeah. they're FDIC insured, and so everybody's like, oh, I don't want to risk it. But you, so you have these credit unions. Absolutely, I have not been aware of any that have opened yet. Mm-hmm. However, I've seen those articles as well that they're they're definitely working on it. I do know that some banks have already said it's okay. Really, we're gonna we're gonna work with you. So there's three banks in Colorado right now. I'm not gonna name them because we don't. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to. But they have opened their doors very privately. Now, I think what happened was they were dealing with maybe a private client once upon a time who start, went into the industry. Sure. And rather than close them down because they were a good client, they kept it open, saw that there was never an issue, and now they're, you know, reaping the benefits. They have at least a, 10 of my clients use that very same bank. Yeah, I've wondered how that might work, especially as the bigger investors get involved that have deals in other, let's say, legitimate in- industries that are pouring lots of money into banks. Uh, what are the banks going to do now? Shut them down and not take any of their money? And how do they distinguish which industry the money they're depositing came from on that day? I mean, you know, it's, exactly. it, it gets to be a little dicey. I would think we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I want to talk with you about maybe the good side of these regulations and what it's doing for the industry. You're listening to Smart Companies Radio on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. Get ready for an evening exploding with energy as we celebrate Kansas City's entrepreneurial community at the 14th Annual 25 Under 25 Awards Dinner and Gala Saturday, February 28th at the Downtown Marriott. Join host Thinking Bigger Business Media and sponsor UMB for cocktails, dinner, and entertainment as we recognize the achievements of 25 outstanding Kansas City area small businesses with under 25 employees. Reserve your tickets starting January 1st at 25under25.com. That's 25under25.com. Good morning. Welcome back to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. We've been talking here this morning with Julie Dooley. She is the co-founder and president of Julie's Baked Goods in Denver, Colorado. She sells, manufactures and sells cannabis-infused snacks, marijuana uh, baked goods. And we've been talking to her about how she founded it, uh, the barriers to entry, as as Julie said, this is the gold rush. Uh, people are coming in. Things are being uh, made up as you go along, so to speak. And there are some regulations that have uh, been implemented. And I guess, Julie, states are left to their own to make up the regulations or, you know, since it's not exactly. legal federally, no. it's up to the states. 
because the federal government's not involved at all. The states are highly involved. So what we have here in Colorado is called the Marijuana Enforcement Division that's run through the Department of Revenue. Um, that's, it's working okay so far. However, what you also have is cities are allowed to implement their own regulations. Okay. And uh, occasionally we have a city that doesn't agree with the other city and uh, or the state in general. And so we've come across some kind of big hurdles, uh, and, and some, like Denver, have been pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Well, and I suppose that makes it really difficult when you are in a metro area like Denver with all kinds of suburban cities that surround it. And, you know, sometimes the boundaries are a little elusive and you find, you know, you're selling to people who are coming in and out. I, I think that probably does get a little complicated. It, it has. Now, the recreational market where to anyone over the age of 21 is allowed to buy, and you, you can be from any place in the world as long as you're 21 and you have an ID to prove it. The medical patients, it's a different story, mm-hmm. and that's what, uh, that's what, of course, my passion is all about the medical patient. But the regulations right now that we're dealing with and that you're hearing about really affect only that recreational market. And, and the reason for these, uh, well, I guess some people would say harsh regulations, uh, what what is what is the thought behind that? Is it because this is still in its infancy and people are very skeptical of the fact that it's even legal to begin with? So yeah. they're trying to uh, make sure you know minimize the opportunity for crime, for uh, irresponsible consumption, for all kinds of things like that. Exactly. A lot of this is fear based. Yes. Uh, we have still are coming out of the era of reefer madness, and there's really <laughs> no. There's no data yet to prove that reefer madness was, in fact, fiction. I mean, I can tell you that it was because I myself am a cannabis user who is a functioning member of society, you know, maybe even a high-functioning member of society because of all the work we do. I mean, we work 70, 80-hour weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not the classic stoner image where we sit on the couch a lot. I would love to be like that. (laughs) But, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I work. So, but that fear is still in some of society. You can see it and you can hear it a lot. And what, what I am a huge fan of is any kind of education. And the state of Colorado, for instance, earned $10 million within the first three months of the recreational sales being allowed in the state. And they still are debating of what to do with that money. And I'm happy to say that I've been a part of some of those debates. And they split it up eventually. So the Colorado Health Department did get some. The governor's office has rights to some of it. And so they're working on education campaigns right now that uh, will help dispel those myths. But we also somebody like myself, supports any kind of scientific study that we're working on with cannabis. Mm -hmm. Um, CU Boulder has a new laboratory. It's relatively new that they're studying the genome, and they're actually trying to map the cannabis genome. And once we have something like that under our belt, it's, it's all bets are off about Read for Madness. It becomes truly a medicine at that point that we can study that we can learn anecdotal effects, and we can feel secure in knowing that 
It's not going to kill you. It's not going to cause you to become schizophrenic. I mean, these are things that I hear a lot. My Mm -hmm. son tried it, and now he has schizophrenia. Well, we know that your son most likely had a predisposition to, um, you know, that... Right, schizophrenia beforehand, sure. It had nothing to do with cannabis. Cannabis might have been something that pushed it forward for him. But anyway, we don't know. We don't even know how it affects the body um, and during pregnancy. You know, there's, I have to have on my package right now that you are not to consume it while you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we don't know if it's bad for the fetus or not. And, and it could be good for the fetus. Not that I'm suggesting that it is, but that's where the science could someday take us. Right. And, and so it's too early. It's early to, you know, we're trying to get rid of the fear. We know now that it can't kill you, but we've got to try and educate the public so that it, it, don't fear it. Let's, let's embrace this as for what it is, a truly extraordinary medicine, and let's keep working on it. Let's keep studying. Let's keep mm-hmm. funding these organizations. You are a big proponent, if people haven't already figured it out, for responsible <laughs> consumption. And you hear these stories about, uh, well, actually, there was a very um, high-profile columnist that uh, ate too many, I don't know if it was brownies, sure. but ate too many edibles and was... In a chocolate bar. Yeah. And and uh, how, how do you know? I'm, I mean, if I were to go into your store in Denver and purchase from you... How do I know how much to eat? I'm hungry, so I might devour quite a bit of it. I mean, how how do you know? How do you help that? How do you help educate people about that? I'm so glad you asked that. We now have been regulated to, for the recreational market, adults over 21, that every dose is 10 milligrams. The state kind of forced us to define what a dose was for a person. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't know that emphatically, but we do know is that 10 milligrams or less can be a moderate to low dose. And so it seems to be safer and more intuitive. So that the state, rather than waiting for scientific evidence and data, just went ahead and forced us, if you will, to put, to delineate all of the products now in 10 milligram serving size. So now we know what a serving size is in general. However, the problem with that is that for you, for me, it's different. Every body is literally different. But it's a good start. Mm -hmm. It's a good, safe way to start dividing up the product. It makes sense to the consumer. And so they're starting to recognize. And everything, all products now on the recreational market are 10 milligrams or up. So, like, for instance, I have a granola bar that has been cut up into five individual 10-milligram serving sizes so that if you're hungry, you eat one that is your dose, let's say one or even half of one, uh-huh. because there, you can rewrap it up. You can only eat half of it and have five milligrams. But then, um, then you have this experience, and the next time you get better at gauging your dose because now you know what you ate, whereas mm-hmm. back in the day, you didn't know. My right. granola bar was 75 milligrams, but you don't. You didn't know that you ate, you know, 40 milligrams because you didn't really know where the half mark was or any of that. So we as manufacturers are trying desperately to help the consumer get, learn their dose. And then 
And, and the problem with cannabis is that, of course, you have a tolerance level. So what works for you for one solid year, let's say you have chronic pain and you've been taking 10 milligrams for a month, you might be ready to go up to 20 milligrams. I mean, you're going to you're gonna start gauging your own mm-hmm. dose. Now, besides the fact that we, all, we delineated them into 10 milligram serving size, we've also increased the information on the label. Right. I've been, my label personally has been full of education since day one. I mean, again, you're talking to a mother. I didn't want you to have my product and not know what you were about to eat. It was very important to me for you to understand that this was an edible, that fat facilitates it, which means that you're going to have a very long effect if you eat it with a fat. So like I have a granola. If you pair that with milk or a yogurt, it's going to have a longer effect than if you just eat it plain and then have water. Right. So we tried to put this information on the package so you yourself will understand, the consumer can understand that. And and we're now adding pictures. Oh, wow. We know that people won't read, which is so frustrating to me because we're educated people and you take your prescription home and you read the label. You should do the same thing with an edible. Read the label. The manufacturers have taken time to put that information on there for you to help you have the desired effect, which should be a very positive thing, not a negative thing. Obviously, it's going to be people like you who help to move the industry forward and legitimize the industry. We thank you for your time today and really wish you well as you sort through all of these and all the changes that are occurring. Well, thank you so much. We're happy to continue to educate about cannabis. And if anybody would like to find out more about what you do, Julie, uh, do they have a website they could go check out? Sure, it's juliesbakedgoodsmmj.com. And if you'd like to learn more about how to grow your business, please visit us at www.ithinkbigger.com. Follow us on Facebook, Thinking Bigger Business Media, or on Twitter at I Think Bigger. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.